Today's reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 3, right the way through to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 13. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our Apostle and High Priest. He was faithful to the one appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honour than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honour than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. So, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for forty years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said, so I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above he says, They shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, 
as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us, therefore, make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Stephen, thanks, thanks for reading very much. Uh, thank you, Claire, for your welcome. May I add my welcome to Claire? So if uh, you've joined us since the beginning, it's wonderful to uh, see you all uh, here this afternoon. Let's pray together as we come to God's word. And verse 12 of chapter 4 uh, says this. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Heavenly Father, we pray that your powerful word would do its work in our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you may remember, if you were around at the beginning of the year, that we, we began looking at the letter to uh, the Hebrews, and we've had a break for a while, and we're going to come back to it now for a few more chapters uh, up to the summer recess. And uh, it's a letter uh, written to a church uh, or churches of Jewish Christians who are in danger of drifting away from their newfound faith in Christ and going back to their old religion of following the Old Testament law. Now, it may, it may not be that that's a particular temptation for any of us today. It may be. But for many of us, uh, those believing in Christ in 21st century London, there are plenty of other factors that would uh, draw us uh, away, make us drift away from uh, believing in Christ. It, it might be the isolating experience of being a cultural minority in a secular society. It might be just sheer busyness. Or it might be just the, the experience of being a Christian after a while seems like hard work and not much joy at the moment. And perhaps for anyone here who, who, who's unsure of whether they believe in Christ or not yet, perhaps those are the same kind of factors that would hold you back from coming to Christ in the first place. So if you're feeling anything like any of these things today, I've got good news for you. Because the, the writer to this, uh, of this letter to the Hebrews isn't wag his finger at us and, and tell us to try harder. He reminds us. He reminds us of how wonderful Christ is. And there are two particular things uh, about Christ that I want to draw, us, uh, draw our attention to this afternoon that he points his finger at. And the, the first one is 
Christ's uh, role as keeping God's law for us. And the second one is that he gives us rest. So our, our first point, how Jesus keeps God's law for us. And this is particularly how we see that he's superior to Moses. And it's in verses 1 to 6 in uh, the passage in front of you. Moses was the iconic, great uh, leader of God's people in the Old Testament. And in Numbers 12, that's referred to uh, here, he's described as faithful over all of God's house. But now, the, the, the writer of this letter is at pains to point out that Jesus is superior to Moses. And he, and he uses this metaphor of a house to do that. And he uses this house metaphor in two different ways. In verse 3, first of all, um, uh, he talks about uh, the builder uh, is being superior to the house that they've designed and made. And in the same way, Jesus is superior to Moses and worthy of far more glory. Well, I, I once enjoyed meeting Richard Rogers, the famous architect, and uh, among his uh, more famous buildings are the Pompidou Centre in Paris and the Lloyds Building in the City of London. They're two they're extraordinarily brilliant buildings. But the fact is, they didn't build themselves. They were conceived in the mind of Richard Rogers. He is the reason why they exist. Now, God's house is his people. Moses is described as just a leader in God's house. Whereas Jesus is described as the one who, who actually brings God's people, God's house, into existence in the first place. He's far superior as the builder of that house. And then in verses 5 and 6, you'll see he, he carries on with this metaphor of a house, but he, he uses it in a slightly uh, different way. It's no longer about the building of a house, but now it's about the difference between owning a house or serving in a house. A servant merely helped in a house, but a son was the legal heir at that time. To all intents and purposes, he was the co-owner of the house with his father, and very often... He was the one who directed the, the whole house for his father when he came of age. So here the picture is, is that Moses is like a servant in the house, but Christ is superior as the son who owns and manages the house. So we've got this idea of superiority. Uh, but verse 5 of chapter 3 tells us more about how exactly Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was a servant of God to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Now, the central task that God used Moses for was to reveal his law to his people. But the writer says here that the true significance of Moses' job as lawgiver didn't actually lie in his own present time but actually it pointed forward to the future. And the rest of this letter to the Hebrews tells us more about this future focus of God's law. It was designed to point people forward to a saviour because they were never able to keep God's law in the, presence, in the present. It pointed forward to the one who would come in the future and, and perfectly keep 
the law and be a perfect sacrifice. In other words, Moses played a part in revealing God's salvation, but Jesus Christ was the salvation itself. It's this that makes Jesus superior to, to Moses. So, hold fast your confidence in Jesus, says the writer. Hold fast your confidence in him. Don't go back to Moses. Moses was pointing forward to him. So have a think about it. Where is your confidence today? Is it perhaps in trying to keep the law of God in some way to earn God's forgiveness or secure it or try and stay in God's good books? Now this is a dead-end road for two reasons. Either it will make us proud and think we don't need God's forgiveness because we're doing a very good job ourselves as we compare ourselves to those around us and think that we're marvellous people. Or instead of making us proud, it might make us despair because we know that we constantly fail in our efforts to please God and to live his way. Through Moses, God gave us a law to show that we cannot save ourselves. And in Jesus Christ, God came in person to keep this law for us. That's how he's wonderfully superior to Moses. He keeps the law for us. The second, uh, the second thing the writer points us to in, this, uh, in these two chapters is how Jesus Christ gives us rest. And that's really from verse 7 uh, onwards, right the way through into chapter 4. The, this theme of rest keeps repeating itself. Rest, rest. It's fascinating how rest and sleep are fast becoming one of the great problems of our modern age. We've got more money and leisure than ever before, but rest somehow becomes more difficult to find. Tom Ford, the fashion designer, the man who literally has everything, when asked what does he want in a recent magazine interview, he answered with one word, sleep. The global sleep aid industry, I looked up yesterday, will reach an estimated $500 billion this year as a market. Whereas a few decades ago, there would have been a handful of sleep disorders that one could suffer from. Today, there are more than 70. And with more disorders come more cures, more, expo more experts and more revenue. We're stressed and we're restless as a modern culture, physically, mentally, spiritually. And work, leisure, relationships, politics, power, none of these things ever seem to quite manage to provide the lasting rest and satisfaction that we're looking for. So what, are this, uh, what do these verses have to say about rest? Well, there, there are two types of rest in view in these verses in Hebrews. The first is physical rest in the land of Canaan that God had promised to his people who he brought out of Egypt. And the generation of God's people who he brought out of Egypt grumbled against God and said they wanted to go back to Egypt. They didn't trust him that they were actually going to get into this physical rest, this physical land. And as a result, God caused them to wander landless in the desert for 40 years, and they never entered that actual 
physical land, apart from two of them, Joshua and Caleb from that generation. And Psalm 95 picks up on this. This is what keeps getting quoted here in these verses, Psalm 95. It was written hundreds of years after the original uh, uh, episodes of Wandering in the Wilderness. And it refers back to this episode as a lesson for the people at the time of the psalm being written, as a lesson to learn from. If they harden their hearts to God like those people did in the past, not entering the physical land, in the time of the psalmist writing, these people too will also not enter God's rest. So clearly at the time of the writing of the psalm, there was still some kind of rest to be entered into. God's people did enter into that physical land of rest in the past, but the psalmist is still talking about a rest to be entered into. After all, verse 8 of chapter 4 says, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day of rest. And then you'll see that the writer also says in verses 1 and 6, written hundreds of years more after the psalm, this is now Hebrews writing hundreds of years later, even then there's still a rest to be entered into. This rest, this promise of rest is still being held out. So what is this? What is this rest? We've had physical rest. Verse 9 tells us there's another rest to be entered into, and it's the Sabbath rest of God. The rest that God's people enjoyed in the physical land was temporary. But God's Sabbath rest is perfect and eternal. The Genesis account says that God rested when he finished creating the world. Not because he was tired, but because it was complete. It was done. And God exists in perfect harmony and peace and rest. Unlike us, we labour away each day and we're not at peace. And this invitation to join him in this Sabbath rest is to join him in his perfect harmony and peace, in his shalom, as the Hebrew word has it. Resting from both our physical labours and our spiritual labours. That word shalom is both physical and spiritual rest and peace. And you can't help but think of that famous invitation that Jesus makes in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. See, Jesus offers us rest now in the present. Rest for the insecure person, forever valuing themselves by, by their looks, their achievements, their money, their friends. Rest for the unfulfilled person, forever seeking satisfaction in this world, but never quite finding it slipping through their fingers. Rest from the endless struggle of politics, perhaps, for many of us, where so often it seems so hard to deliver the justice, the fairness, the flourishing we long to see in the world. Rest for everyone who, who, who keeps God's law... Um, rest for everyone in the one who keeps God's law perfectly for us and restores us to that perfect eternal rest with the God who made us. See, Christ offers not just the present rest of assurance of forgiveness of sins, but a future rest in heaven, where there'll be no sin, no suffering, no death. 
Don't you long for that, for that kind of rest that fulfills us in the present and lasts forever? Come to me, says Jesus, and I will give it to you. Well, finally, the writer follows these great promises of forgiveness and rest with an urgent appeal, and it comes in two parts. First, he says, do not harden your hearts. And we can't, you can't fail to get that message from these verses. It repeats again and again and again, do not harden your hearts. It's a very interesting phrase, because the modern secular view of a human being tends to emphasise that we're purely rational creatures who think about God and the meaning of life through a perfectly sealed process of cool-headed reasoning. Interestingly, though, this is now being seriously challenged in the secular academy. Jonathan Haidt, who's the social psychologist at New York University, um, in the last 10 years published this book, fascinating book called A Righteous, The Righteous Mind. And in it, he shows that our core convictions about things like politics and religion are shaped primarily by our emotions and basic intuitions from our social conditioning and our moral desires, rather than being some cool-headed rational process that we've completely thought through. Now, the Bible was teaching this a long, long, long time before modern social psychology. It says that none of us approach God in a cool-headed, perfectly rational way. The Bible says we are controlled by our heart, and the heart in the Bible is a way of describing the person's entire emotional and moral centre, which directs all of our thinking and acting and affects all of our thinking. In the words of Hebrews 3 and 4, our hearts are naturally disobedient and hardened against God. And that's why God appeals to our hearts, our whole beings, not just to our minds. And I think that explains why we get this, uh, just at the very end, these couple of verses about the word of God. In, verses, in verse 4, verse 12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. See, the word of God exposes what we're really like, right at our centre, in the very control centre of our beings. It speaks to our hearts. So, I'm just wondering out loud, what is the thing, or things perhaps, in your heart that would stop you trusting in the forgiveness and the rest of Christ today? Because there's nothing so bad that this Saviour cannot forgive. And there's nothing so good that beats this Saviour's rest. What's holding you back in your heart? And the second part of this urgent appeal comes in the repeat of that word, today. That this appeal is so urgent, it must be acted on today. It's not something like tidying your sock drawer or cleaning out the attic that can be delayed until the holidays or when you've got more time. It can't even be delayed till tomorrow. It keeps repeating this word, today. It must be done today. So, as we close, today... Don't harden your heart to the living and active word of God. Today, trust 
in the one who is far superior to Moses, the one who's kept God's law for you to secure your forgiveness. And today, enter into his perfect rest. Why don't we pray for God's help that that we might do that today? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And we who have believed enter that rest. We we pray these for ourselves, uh, these verses, this lunchtime, our Heavenly Father. We pray that we would not harden our hearts, but soften them to hear your word to us. Please speak to our hearts as we Uh, go out from here today and please enable us to believe for the first time or to keep uh, believing that Jesus fulfills the law for us he is our perfect saviour and that he's also the one who can give us true perfect and lasting rest we pray that you would help us to put our trust in him and live out that rest in all that we do today and this week. In Jesus' name, amen.